knowledge is different from wisdom. And I think fundamentally, the, the, the biggest problem for our, for our young people is to discern truth, to understand what is valid and what is reliable. That's it. Cast your mind back to when you were younger. How did you want to change the world? What skills and opportunities do you wish you had to succeed? And now, fast forward to today. Do you believe young people have these skills and opportunities? In Youth We Trust sits down with successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, educators, and others from around the world. We spotlight how individuals and organizations are shaping a better world, directly or indirectly, for the coming generations, through their focus on sustainability, equity, education, and more, to empower young people to create the future they deserve. And now, in Youth We Trust. In this episode, we embark on a dialogue with Michael Lambert, headmaster at Dubai College, one of the most prestigious schools in the Gulf region. He shares rich anecdotes from his youth to emphasize the need for young people to take greater risks and build resilience despite social pressures to confirm. But more importantly, he talks with uncanny candor and clarity on topics such as AI and the role school, industry and the government needs to play to prepare the next generation for the future. Good afternoon, Michael, um, and welcome to In Youth We Trust podcast. Hello, Prashant. Thanks ever so much for inviting me. Yes, I can't tell you how excited I am actually to be talking to uh, one of the leading educators and leaders. Michael, as you know, uh, a little bit, um, you know, at Lumi, we are all about running quests for young people to expose them to the greatest problems that, uh, you know, humanity is facing and also to build through that the skills they need for the future. Now, let me start by taking you right back to your younger self. And if you were to participate in a quest where you had a chance to shape an important issue, what would that quest be? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, reflecting on my younger self, I mean, I, I, I have to say I was a relatively... Um, uh, wayward youth who who got into all sorts of trouble when I was at um, certainly at secondary school. So I, I was relatively directionless for a while um, uh, at secondary school. I was pretty good on the academics, but didn't really have a a, a, a clear direction. But I think lat- latterly, uh, in my sort of teens and early twenties, uh, I kind of always hoped or or thought that I might be some sort of uh, latter day you know, 20th century, 21st century Indiana Jones kind of uh, buccaneering <laughs> anthropologist, archaeologist uh, type, you know, exploring the world for kind of cultural experiences and and, 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 and sort of having an open-minded approach to, to what was going on elsewhere, you know, outside of the, the pretty cloistered uh, existence that I had in a little village in the middle of Warwickshire, in the middle of England, um, you know, which was sort of very, very traditionally British. Right. And and was there a topic that particularly like uh, meant a lot to you? Was there something that was frustrating you about the system or in society? Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, it was more about, you know, open mindedness. I did feel kind of pretty straight jacketed. Um, you know, I, don't, don't get me wrong. I had a, a, a lovely childhood. But as I say, it was very traditionally uh, sort of white English middle class in the countryside 
and there was a certain way of doing things. And I lived in a small village outside of a small town. Uh, and after a while, it just kind of felt like there was m more in the world. So I loved my first degree, which was in uh, which was in classics and kind of immersing myself in the Greco-Roman world and and experiencing a world that that was broadly, you know, very recognisable to our own and yet subtly different in in so many different ways. And I remember uh, there's a there's a quotation in in Herodotus and it quotes the, the Greek poet Pindar who says that custom is king of all. And and there's a scene, and it talks about two different groups um, in sub-Saharan Africa and the, the burial practices that they have. And, you know, one of the tribes would would bury the dead under the ground um, and, and thought that was the most honourable thing to do. And the tribe literally down the road would burn the dead. Um, and if you talk to one another of, of the two tribes, they thought it was a horrendous thing to do, to, to burn your dead. Um, and those hmm. who who burnt the dead thought it was a completely unhygienic thing uh, to bury your dead. And these guys were only a few miles apart. And I thought, God, isn't that curious uh, that you can be living in a close geo uh, a geographical proximity and yet have completely different worldviews? Um, and that's when I sort of kind of got, you know, interested in, in, in uh, anthropology. And that was my second degree. And at, at that point was when I really thought I wanted to be this sort of latter day uh, Indiana Jones. Um, I, I traveled through Egypt for a while. I almost ended up buying a, a Feluca, one of those sort of traditional sailboats uh, with, a, with a few Nubian guys that I'd met. They wanted to start a business. They thought I could bankroll that. <laughs> and uh, I nearly, nearly forewent my, the graduate program that I'd, I'd sort of got a place on after university just to spend a, a year in Egypt. So I thought, God, this is, this is crazy and so different from my background. Um, and then after that, in my mid-20s, I almost got a job uh, running a school in Xinjiang province uh, in, in uh, Western China. Uh, again, just because I was so aware that there were so many different ways to, to view the world. And I've always been very open-minded and always in, on the hunt for sort of experiences. So I guess the quest for me is, is it was always more kind of uh, an ideas-based quest about cultural understanding bridging the gap, awareness, and open-mindedness. Well, these are really, really important things, right? So I think, uh, I, I think if we fast forward to today, um, what is the greatest strength that you, can, that you of today can lend to your younger self to actually help him break free yeah. even faster? I almost bought a feluca in southern Egypt, but I didn't. I almost ran a school uh, in, in Xinjiang province in Western China, but I didn't. Mm. And, uh, and both of those were great opportunities. It wouldn't in any of way uh, have slowed me down or, or hindered me or, or hampered my progress. I felt that there was an expectation upon me to do something that was perhaps more socially acceptable to my friendship group or to my parents or to the sort of background that I came from. So I didn't buy the Feluca. I was a good boy. <laughs> I went back to London and I started my graduate scheme at Barclays uh, and, and did that for a few years. So the advice that I would give to my younger self is to have the courage, uh, you know, to pursue those opportunities when you're young. Because in the grand scheme of things, you know, we ebb and flow in our progress. Some people start something sooner and they'll, they'll, you know, zoom off in the distance, but then they'll slow down and plateau. 
you may have been slow to start, but you'll catch up latterly. And there's this constant ebb and flow of, of, of progress through life. But I think we, and particularly young people today, you know, they grow up with so much expectation um, heaped upon their shoulders from society, from what they read in the, in the news, um, from the expectations about the world, from their parents, from their friends, etc., that they too are probably going to end up pursuing what are socially acceptable things when they should have the courage to throw off the shackles of social expectation, you know, throw a little caution to the wind while they're young, uh, you know, throw themselves into those experiences, and then they can settle down and get a serious and sensible job and saddle themselves with debt. But there's no, there's no point in rushing that too soon. It's such a good point. And I can so personally relate to it. If you, you know, this, this advice to yourself, I think it actually applies to a very large percentage of young people globally, because if you look at them, and as I look at as a parent, them as a parent, I feel like they're even more under, as you said, they're even more under pressure. So do you think, how do we give the, these young people um, this kind of freedom? And how do you actually give them the skills to be able to take those decisions? Um, wh one of the things that we do is that we, we have a, a sort of a journeys, what we call a journeys program, where we get uh, former students or staff or parents or, or people that they, that they know and can relate to, to come and tell their story to the young people and explain their journey. Because the journey is r rarely linear. And you think, oh, well, yeah, that's, I'd like to emulate that person. So how did they get there? And when they tell you this zigzag story of triumph and disaster that they've been through to get there, that, that, that in no way was it a linear path. And, and basically to give the, the young people permission to make mistakes and to go down some dead ends and to have to double back and to try again and to rebuild and regroup. And if they can hear that from someone who's done it, uh, then I think that's the main thing. We need to give young people permission to explore and, and, and to remove that weight of expectation from their shoulders. If you look at, uh, you know, your role, how are you currently personally empowering young people to kind of develop these kinds of skills or develop that sense of, uh, you know, perspective to mm. take risks? I think we're talking actually about the ability to take risks and also about resilience because, you know, things will work out as long as you, you know, you have a certain set of skills. But how do you mm -hmm. do, how, what are you doing today? And I think, you know, there, there, there are several elements to what any school can and, and, and sort of does offer. And, you know, I think the areas where, uh, you know, young people understandably are more reticent to take risks uh, um, is in relation to, you know, the, the standardized curriculum that leads towards the qualification and the examination. So, so that, you know, we, we leave relatively untouched. How we approach teaching and learning is, is, is different. So there's a huge focus for us in the school on, um, on oracy. So there's a vertical thread all around communication, collaboration, uh, challenging one another, questioning one another, uh, linking learning across domains. Uh, it's very live. Um, and I suppose it's very uh, experiential and experimental at the same time. But really, you can't touch the curriculum. So the, the, the real areas to, to explore risk and resilience comes from the wider co-curricular and extracurricular opportunities that we give to the students, whether that's a model United Nations team that's come together 
that, 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 that learn to collaborate live on a topic or a theme that they've never approached before. And they're going to meet with these hurdles and obstacles. Things are going to go well. You know, they're going to take two steps backwards before they take the great leap forward. You know, exposing to our, to our students to as many opportunities like that. And particularly, I think, sport and international mm. travel are the other two areas uh, that, that, that we're particularly strong at here. So I suppose any situation uh, that allows us to position students in a place where they can't have pre planned uh, an ordained route as you do get from the academic curriculum but actually requires them to respond live and in the moment now those are the areas uh, that, that they're going to teach this sort of risk-taking resilience so if i take your example i mean you would have gone on ahead and actually started your journey in egypt mm -hmm. and that would have been a completely entrepreneurial journey mm -hmm. but there is at some point the risk of disappointing the society, but also this, you know, not understanding what does it take to actually build something like this? If we're talking about how are we actually uh, teaching our students explicitly about enterprise and entrepreneurship, at the moment, uh, we are not. We are teaching our kids transferably in situations. Now, that doesn't mean that our students aren't enterprising and entrepreneurial. Um, We've certainly got a, a, um, a digital skills curriculum uh, for our younger year groups in, in years seven and eight, so the students who are sort of 11 to 13. And, and basically, we, we teach them a set of, of digital skills, whether that's videography, whether that's running uh, their own podcast, uh, or whether they're, they're, they're running a video cast, mm. um, whether they're creating an infographic. And then we, we take uh, the UN Sustainable Development Goals and we say, right, you've got the skills to, to represent your ideas in a visually or auditory arresting way. So take one of these topics or take one of these big ideas and big problems. And you're going to work on a mini project using your digital skills, and your creative thinking to work up potential solutions to these problems. So Whilst it's not specifically business related, what they what they have got are big issues, a, a, a team environment, collaborating and thinking critically and creatively together, and then presenting that solution in a way that is understandable to their peer group and to anybody else that they want to sell it to, effectively in what we talk to the students a lot about, which is the attention economy. Because we are so bombarded with huge amounts of information on a daily basis, right? There is something vying for our attention every single second of the day, including Absolutely. at various points, your teacher. And your teacher <laughs> is vying for attention with all this other stuff, right? So how do you present your creative solution to this problem in a way that is arresting, that is going to capture attention in an attention economy where on average we're probably giving what 30 to 60 seconds of cursory attention to an issue or a topic we read a headline and i think for us it's helping our students a to understand what they're up against but also b learning how they can compete in this attention economy with these digital skills that, that, that make it engaging for their audience this episode is brought to you by lumi.network we're on a mission to help the next generation get ready to take on the world. 
Our AI augmented platform runs quests that help 10 to 25 year olds shape their future by developing AI, entrepreneurship and design thinking skills to solve the most pressing business and social issues. If you or your organization wants to positively impact the next generation, we'd love to talk to you. To learn more, visit lumi.network. I think building on that, another challenge is, you know, um, to actually be clearer about, you know, what are the problems that these young people need to get involved with? Mm. Uh, we, we both know, and I, you know, I'll soon be asking you about AI, which is a big one, but there, there is climate, there is AI, there is inequality, there is, you know, and, and or some of these things are captured very well in the United Nations goals, but not all of it. Mm. And these are so different. So for you, what are those two or three most important problems that these young people today need to get involved with to then secure their own future? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, it's 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 it, it, it's a difficult one because I think it will be different for different different students and different people. I mean, I think the thing is, it's 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 accessing good knowledge. You know, being able to be a discerning uh, student, researcher, consumer, to be able to separate the valid from the invalid mm-hmm. in this culture where we are being bombarded with with data and information. But information is different from knowledge. And knowledge is different from wisdom. And I think fundamentally, the, the, the biggest problem for our, for our young people is to discern truth, to understand what is valid and what is reliable. That's it. Uh, and then how, once they know what the real issue is, not what the issue is that's being presented to them by some very big global organizations, you've got a huge marketing budget and a huge amount of power, we're all talking about the future of jobs because we're all being sold these very well packaged problems in a in a in a portfolio profile and we're going oh yes this is what we must focus on and it, it's you know it reminds me of that old monty python uh, sketch from the life of brian where brian is trying to tell all of his followers he's like look you're all individuals and they're all standing outside his balcony and they chant back up to him we're all individuals <laughs> And and that's the problem. We are all individuals. And it's like, yes, and we've all got these identical problems. But we haven't. We've all got very localized problems. Yes, and that's very there are some big global problems as well. But it's you know, it's 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 helping our students to to zoom out and to zoom in and to ascertain what is right here and right now the major issue. One of the things that I worry about for for, for, for young people as well is the zombie stat. That we that we constantly hear and read about that something like eighty five percent of jobs uh, that will uh, you know exist in in twenty thirty have not yet been invented. If you dig into that, there are some really interesting research pieces. That's why I call it a zombie stat. So a it's been debunked. I don't know who came up with it in the first place. There's a really good Radio Four program uh, that tries to, to 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 find the source of some of these phrases that we use on a regular basis. And when they actually found out where it came from, it wasn't that at all. It was 85% of the jobs that students in Europe wanted to do by the time they were adults, they were not yet equipped to do. And there's a really good research piece that's just come out of Australia as well that basically says, if you track um, job advertisements on the biggest job databases, there are a small number of these emerging roles. But predominantly, all the roles that we still need will remain. So I've got terrified teenagers going, well, I'm not even sure that the job that I want to do will be there by the time I get to adulthood. 
chances are, if it involves some sort of humane and human critical thinking and interaction, it will be there. So I, I, I think the world perhaps, and it, you know, it, it comes back to all the Hans Rosling stuff about factfulness. Sometimes there are there are these big scary ideas that are peddled by the media because they sell that may not actually fundamentally be true that are worrying our young people. So for me, it comes back to being discerning what what knowledge is true, valid, and reliable. And for me, that's probably mm. the biggest biggest issue facing the youth. That's a, that's such a good point. I think uh, you know you said many things, but I think having the ability to uh, judge and discern. I mean, I remember an instance in one of the quests where we had young people from Mexico and we had people from India and we had people from London. So they started to talk about just how polluted London was. And they were so convincing, to your point, right, that everybody from India and Mexico suddenly believed that, wow, the city that we wanted to visit and we so much love because we see it is the, one of the most polluted cities in the world. And then what we did was we actually gave them a link to a website which allows you to compare cities. And then they found that Mexico City was within the top 10. Delhi was in top 10 and London was 64th. Mm. So that's the point you're making, right? Mm. Factfulness, you know, mm. understanding facts, which suddenly they, the, the, the whole virtual room went quiet the issues that technology is now giving rise to mm -hmm. is fake news. And, and it's going to actually only prof proliferate. The thing is that young people need to be involved and actually have a say in some of these things. But before that, they need to develop that knowledge and that understanding of what the problem really is. But there is another point, which was about a section of society developing that. How do you equitably develop mm -hmm. this? Mm -hmm in society, but that lopsided nature of yeah. your development in itself is creating so much challenge. Yeah. So how do you, how, what, how would you do that and how are you doing it? Mm. When you, when you, when you look at the contemporary mandate for a school, you know, it, 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 it seems that a school becomes the locus for fixing everything. Mm. So we're responsible for providing young people with foundational knowledge, which they need in order to then move on to more advanced and creative thinking. But we've got a, a, a mental health uh, uh, epidemic among young people. Um, you know, greater levels of anxiety and depression. There's a really great FT article uh, back in March that, that tracks it back to the advent of the, the, the smartphone. And when it went from being a luxury item to a ubiquitous item, and we spend so much time online. So we've got a, 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 a mental health and anxiety issue that's affecting young people, which schools are being asked to deal with. So we've got fundamental knowledge, fundamental skills, mental health and well-being. talking about the dangers of social media. Uh, we've got a, a, a proliferation and understanding of uh, neurodiversity and how we need to be teaching differently and, and being adaptive for every single student within our care. We need to get our students ready for the careers that they're going to face in the future. We need to get our students ready to, to act in a socially just way when they join a community and society. I mean, th th there's so many things that sit within the school to be its responsibility. So how, how, how can we be equitable in delivering all of this? I mean, ultimately, this is where government needs to come in. Government needs to understand, okay, we need to 
to give everybody access to this sort of thing. I think when we when we first talked, we were talking about um, artificial intelligence in particular. If I sort of use that as an example, uh, how many hours a day are you spending on social media? Uh, two hours, half the room, three hours, a quarter of the room, four hours, the sort of remaining quarter. So that room was spending between two and four hours per day on social media. I mean, that's a huge amount, 28 hours in a week. That's an eighth day in the week uh, that they that they could gain if they didn't have their, their sort of social media uses. So you, you'll be aware that large language models, you know, came online with a bang last October uh, with ChatGPT. How many of you are currently using something like ChatGPT or another platform like that to help you with your learning? Just under half. But, uh, and, and, you know, I'm trusting these kids because they're telling me that, you know, they're spending four hours a day on social media. So they're, they're not holding back on the gory details. So just under half said that they were. And I was like, OK, so o- over half of you aren't yet. And they said, yeah, we're, we're, we're not. And, and I was like, well, why not? I said, well, we don't really, you know, it's not of interest to us yet because it's not really gone that far up their agenda. We don't really know that much about it. Like, it doesn't seem of interest. I can't see how it would help. Uh, and it's not a priority. So what what you had, even in a school like mine, uh, in one class, you had this massive split, uh, which was therefore effectively inequitable, because there's a digital poverty that, that, that goes with the half of the room that aren't using it. The half that are, that are learning about it, they're becoming more skilled in it. Yes. So what we're now looking at as a school is introducing 14, or at least UNESCO found about 14 um, countries plus three non-governmental uh, organizations that have produced these AI competency frameworks. And, and our view is that this isn't telling them that they should use it or necessarily how to use it. It's what is it? Is it a good thing? Is it something that you can use? How is it constructed? How is it going to be used? What are the risks? What do you need to be aware of? So our job as educators is to make sure that everybody is at least brought up to the same baseline level of knowledge and that's where you're going to get the the equitability on this but until there's a a national program it could end up that that our school puts this in place but all the other schools in town don't and then suddenly the 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 the, the, the students at dc have got that sort of digital advantage to an extent so this stuff definitely you know really needs to come at at a sort of national level that's right. I think that's why you were talking about the Minister for AI in this region. Mm. What are the other things you're doing uh, to prepare this young generation for AI, uh, Michael? Well, yeah, I mean, at, at, at this initial stage, I mean, it's, you know, I think, let's be honest, you know, most schools, uh, like probably most organizations, have been kind of caught on the back foot. I don't think anybody really knew or anticipated that, that ChatGPT would be re- released last October. And suddenly the horse has bolted and we're all now looking at it, tearing off into the distance going, oh, yeah, we should probably get that thing under control. But the fact is, at the moment, you know, the, the EU AI Act, uh, which is the first sort of piece of legislation that I'm aware of, is only going to come into force at the end of this calendar year. So, so, so governments have not yet uh, got, got themselves into gear to pr- produce AI legislation. So what we're left doing as a school is is we're working with our our staff at the moment to go, look, a a school fundamentally is an institution whose role is to safeguard children, safeguard them so that they're ready for the future, but also to safeguard them from harm. 
and that includes online harm, access to damaging content. Um, that includes protecting their data, uh, you know, ensuring that we've got consent, that we're not exposing them to dodgy or corrupt or polluted knowledge, that we're not exposing them to discriminatory um, language or knowledge that comes out of these sort of models and platforms. So at the moment as a school, what we're working on are, are 10 uh, guiding principles that, that do come out of UNESCO. And first and foremost, we're, we're upskilling our staff and our senior middle leaders to go, look, we need to put in the guardrails first. That will be our base. Uh, then once we've got the guardrails in place, we know that we shouldn't be processing or sharing student data online in a public platform because we've got no idea where that information is going to go. Do we all know that? You know, our, our parents are aware. There's a great, um, there's a great uh, video called Without Consent from a, a German telecom um, company, which, which uh, you know, takes the image of a, of a young girl and ages her and her parents are in the cinema and uh, this older version of the daughter talks to the mum and dad and they're absolutely horrified. But they've taken a sample of her voice, they've taken her image and aged her and they've created this deep fake that I think you were sort of alluding to um, yes, earlier. So as a school, first and foremost, we've got to be really, really careful. We're not putting any personal data in a public platform that relates to any of our children or our staff for that matter. So at the moment, we're really working hard on the guardrails. And I think what we're going to end up with is creating really quite a small box. I go, right, assuming you don't do this, you don't do that, you don't do the other, you don't do this, because we're actually, our job is to look after children. Well, if you can do all of that, then we're going to adopt a pro-innovation approach to AI, because we need to expose our students to this so they don't have this digital poverty. We need to teach them the generic competencies around AI, but we also need to teach them about domain-specific uses of AI. So there mm. may be some stuff in music that's quite, quite different to what you can access in, say, mathematics. So that requires our staff to have the time and the training to understand well, what is available in our domains. And it's evolving so quickly all the time. I mean, this could become in and of itself a full-time role for a head of AI. You've talked about the role of the government. Do you think businesses have a role to play? I mean, I'm, I'm stepping back from AI, but actually zooming out and looking at all these different problems that young people are facing. Because yeah. on the one hand, we hear uh, that businesses often complain that, you know, young yeah. people are not ready for the world, world of work. They have yeah. degrees, but no skills. So is it time now that we actually try and foster that kind of collaboration? But if so, how? I, 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 I couldn't agree more. I mean, I've, I've, I've had a bee in my bonnet about this before, because as I say, it, 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 it seems that everything trickles down to the school. Yeah, this, you're uh, right. Again, and, and it's like, well, hang on a sec. If, if, <laughs> it, you know, if, if we're not getting our students ready for what you need, well, where is this competency framework for workplace readiness that you have created in neatly digestible format that says, we would really like you to be giving your students this so that by the time they join us, they'll have that. Why does it come back to the school yet again? If industry is concerned, then industry must find the solution and support schools in order to yeah. deliver. That's my view. That's a very, very good point. But I think this is really where entrepreneurs and forward-thinking leaders, I think, can make a difference in trying to positively affect this kind of change. Now, 
let me ask you, <laughs> take you completely into the future. And, you know, and if we go super far into the future, what is your craziest prediction about AI? Because this is a topic you're passionate about. I've got to be honest, I, you know, I'm probably marginally less ignorant about this topic. At the moment, generative AI doesn't understand anything. It's not cognizant. You know, the, the way that, that large language models work and generative AI works is it's all about statistics. If you ask it a prompt, it will find some information and it will put it together statistically and probably which words follow one another to make a plausible text. That's it. It's got no idea whether it makes sense. So at the moment, artificial intelligence is a bit of an oxymoron because it's mm. not intelligent. It understands nothing. It's not capable of thinking critically and coming up with new solutions. It can just follow a series of rules. Now, will it ever reach the point where it is sentient? I've absolutely no idea. Large language models, for example, are, are based on the sum total of publicly available knowledge. Now, when you generate an answer from the, the training material, which is the internet, and it produces an answer, and then you pass that answer off as, as your own. So say I wrote a newsletter for Dubai College, uh, but I got generative AI to write it for me. Then I published that on my LinkedIn profile. That goes back into the pot of knowledge, but it was made out of that knowledge. So it reinforces that knowledge. And if that, well, not if that information, I should say, was wrong, you just get another version of that information. So, so, Technically, I suppose, bad actors can pollute the internet with false information, which then generative AI produces answers for you, which we take at face value and regurgitate, which goes back into the pot, which amplifies that false knowledge. So that's, that's my biggest concern, I think. It's at a very, very important point. I read a very interesting um, quote that AI is a child, mm. treated like a child. And that means what, you know, how you behave with it, how you actually start to act, interact with it, it's going to start picking up all of those things. And it'll actually then start behaving exactly like that. So therefore, if you're asking random things, and if you're actually, you know, as you point out, you're getting random information, but you're feeding that back into it, then 20 years later, we'll have this massive problem where it's become the very thing it didn't want, we didn't want us to become, which is why I personally, you know, I bring it back to use. Mm. It's extremely important to educate young people about, about this problem, the factual understanding of these issues rather than opinions. And actually, this is why also by doing, you may be a, you're able to learn uh, rather than just reading. There's a, there's a great thread that runs through the UNESCO guidance on, on AI and education and research, which is exactly your point. And it's the point about human agency. Yeah. We must not steal from human beings the thing that makes humans human, which is your ability to interact, to collaborate, to think critically, to come up with novel solutions to big problems. We Only we can be creative enough to come up with the, the novel solutions. So we must let young people know They've got a gift as a human being that they are critical thinkers and they are humane. And we need to help them exercise those skills as much as possible and not abrogate that 
gift that they've been given as a human to an unthinking machine. That's such a good point. Well, look, it's been absolutely great talking to you, Michael. Thank you so much for being on, on the In Youth We Trust podcast and for giving up your time and also sharing your, your views and, and, and wisdom. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you found this conversation valuable, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have a story or someone you know does, please recommend them to us by email at hello at lumi.network. We'll see you next time on In Youth We Trust.